The only remedy for this sin-sick world is, of course, our Lord Jesus. This is made clear from our reading in John 14. Please have your Bibles open there. John 14, 1 through 14. We began this little study Wednesday evening. We focused mainly on John 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. A very powerful statement by our Lord Jesus. And we mentioned on Wednesday night that since Jesus is the way, then all those who do not follow him are lost. And since Jesus is the truth, then all who do not follow him are mistaken. They're in error. And thirdly, we mentioned Wednesday night that since Jesus is the life, then without the Lord, we are dead in our sins. But so grateful that the Lord in His mercy has brought to us His gospel. And we can read it, we can understand it, we can submit to it, and we can get out of our sin. We can come out of the clutches of Satan himself. We can have hope in this life and in that which is to come. And we're so grateful for that. So let us continue here in John 14 and notice how Jesus is the answer for troubled hearts. Jesus is the answer for trouble. He's the only answer. He's the only answer. Without the Lord, we'd be nothing. So here we go. The first category tonight is Jesus and trouble. Jesus knows trouble. Jesus is the master. He's the master of handling trouble. Isaiah 9 verse 6 refers to him as the counselor, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace is our Lord. Jesus is the counselor. He had people coming to him all the time with their sicknesses and with their problems. And he even raised the dead. Jesus is the master of trouble. And we remember what he says in Matthew 6, 25 through 33 when he talked about how that we ought not to take, take thought. We ought not to be anxious in life. He does not want us to be anxious in life. Don't take thought for what you are going to eat, what you're going to put on, for the Heavenly Father already knows you need uh, these things. Jesus says in that passage you need to look around and observe. Look around and observe. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, and they do not put things in the barns, but yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Look around, people. Look around. If the Father's going to feed the birds, He's going to take care of those who follow Him. He said also, look around and observe. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the lilies. of They neither toil nor their spin, but look how they are clothed. He says, well, I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his clothing was never arrayed like the lilies of the field. And if the Lord can provide for the lilies of the field who are, who are today and then tomorrow cast in the oven, shall he not take care of you, O oh, you little faith, he says. Look around and observe. He says even this. He says, look at yourself. Which of you by being anxious, which of you by taking thought can add one hour to the span of his life. Has that ever happened? Has anybody just sat down and said, oh, let me worry, let me worry, let me worry. All right, I got another hour. I got another. Oh, let me worry some more, worry some more, some more. Oh, there's another hour added to my life. Now just observe. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And so he says observe. He also says in Matthew 6, to look at the organization that God loves. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's the organization. 
That's the organization that we need to have our minds on. Okay, not the World Health Organization, but the organization of the Lord's church, the church, the kingdom, the one that Jesus talked about in Matthew 16, uh, 16 to 18. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. And he said to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. That's the organization. He says, you ought to seek it first. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things. And I, I think it says that. Does it say that in your Bible, Sam? All, all, does, he say, does it say all, you, all these things? All these things. Okay. And the Lord knows what we mean. And he knows what he means when he says all these things. And all these things. The, the food and the clothing is just a sample of the things that people worry about. All these things he will add unto us. And so we just need to consider that. In Proverbs 23, 6 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so our worry begins in our hearts. And if we want to control our thoughts, we've got to just trust in the Lord. If we want to control our worry, we've got to control our thoughts. And we can do that. We can do that. Notice that Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 8, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I mean, the, the Bible gives it. The Lord provides for us the types of thoughts we ought to have, and the more we think on these types of things, then the more we're going to be able to trust in Him. Ephesians 4, 29 says, Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but rather speak that which is edifying. Edifying. Okay, if you're going to speak what is edifying, you've got to hear what is edifying. Okay. And so, Jesus knows trouble. He's the master of handling trouble. And this is just a couple of passages that help us to deal with, uh, with, with troubled hearts. So, Jesus and uh, trouble. The second category tonight, Jesus and his Father, John 14. He said, in my Father's house. When Jesus says, my father, that's a lot different than me or you saying my father. Now, we are taught to pray, Matthew 6, 9. We are taught to pray to begin, you know, our father who is in heaven. And that's, that's great. God is our spiritual father, no doubt about it. But when Jesus says it, it's different. It's higher. It's more special. It just has to be because of who he is. All right. Think about this. Um, Luke 2, when uh, Joseph and Mary came to search for Jesus and they found him in the temple. He said to his parents, he said, how is it that you sought me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? My father's business? My father's house? John 2, 13 to 17, they're, they're, they're making uh, a mess out of the Lord's uh, temple there in Jerusalem. They're bringing in oxen. And sheep, and they're setting up tables for exchanging money. This was never part of the legislation of God under the old law. Jesus comes in there, he gets him a whip, he runs out these animals, he overturns the tables, and he says this Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Don't do this. Don't do this. In John 5, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day, and this always upset the Jews. He healed a lame man on the, on the Sabbath day. And they just kept pestering him about this. And, and 
And if you look down at John 5, 16, it says, I just persecuted him, persecuted him for doing this. Finally, he said in John 5, uh, 17, my father works up until now, and I work. He puts himself right there with the father. My father works until now, and, and I also work. Okay. And that's very significant. And then after they heard him say that, they tried to persecute him even more because they could understand that when Jesus used that phrase, my father, he was making himself equal with God. Look at that there in John 5, 18. They knew what he meant, and Jesus knew what he was saying. John 15, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. My father. My father. In John 20, it may, may be as plain as, as anything. John 20, 17, Jesus, in his resurrected form now, having come back from the dead, talking to Mary Magdalene, and she understands finally who he is. And he says to her, now go tell the brethren. Go tell the brethren. I sin unto my father and your father unto my God and your God. He separates that, you see. Because he is the one. He is the one. Looking on down in John 14, 7 through 10. Notice, uh, Sam, go back there for just a minute and be ready. John 14, 7 through 10. You see that Jesus explains to Philip, Philip, you know, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Because Philip said, you know, show us the Father. Okay. I want you to notice how intertwined Jesus and the Father are. It's because they are God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. Okay. Notice here, Sam, John 14, verse uh, 10 again. So if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip says unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices. Jesus says to them, I have been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The word that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the work. All right. Notice that Jesus says, not only have you, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father, but also notice that he says, don't you see that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father? What's the significance of this? The fact, this right here. That is, when Jesus speaks, we sit up and listen. Because he is in the know. Okay? He is in the Godhead. He's up there. He's the upper man. Okay? He is the Lord. Okay? When he says something, when he declares something, when he sets something up, then we must follow because he is, he is the one who is speaking for God. Now these passages, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is in the very image of God. In Hebrews 1, 3, read it in your own Bible, but it says something like that Jesus is the very exact imprint of God's nature. Okay. The very imprint of the nature of God. Now, right there in John 14, Jesus says, you know, since this is the case, then you can believe my words. You know, he, he says early in the chapter, if it were not so, I would have told you. 
How sure are we that when we leave this earth, heaven is waiting on us? We're just as sure as we are sure about the Son of God. And we're sure about the Son of God because He's intertwined. The Father is in Him and He is in the Father. And then in addition to that, Jesus said, if you don't believe me, believe my words. So when you put the words of Jesus with the works of Jesus, along with the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, how can you walk about without assurance? How can we walk about how can we walk with doubt? And so Jesus and the Father is a great category as well. Next category is Jesus and the Father's house. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. The Father's house. Of course, the church is God's house, 1 Timothy three fifteen. But here Jesus is talking about the house of God moved to heaven. This is, this is heaven. In my father's house are many mansions. Mansions there simply is a, a reference to rooms. In, in heaven there are many rooms. There are many rooms. This is important for a first century audience. Jesus uh, told a little story about uh, the importance of prayer and, and being persistent in prayer over in Luke chapter 11. He tells about a man who says uh, he has uh, someone come and visit him late at night. And then he goes to his neighbor, his friend, and knocks on his door and said, Hey, I've got somebody who has dropped by. Do you have three loaves of bread that I, I can borrow? And the man from inside the house yells out and said, Look, I'm already in bed with my children. I just don't need to get up and, and, and do this for you at this time. But the man persists, and when he persists, the man will finally get up out of the bed with the rest of the house and go and carry to that. What Jesus is doing there is, he's saying, don't quit praying, keep on praying. But from that little story Jesus tells there, we get the good idea that those, most of the people in that environment of Judea, they lived in one-room houses. Okay? The man was in bed with his children. Okay? You picture one long bed, everybody goes to bed at the same time. They're all together in that same room. But Jesus is opening up their eyes and saying, look, in my Father's house, there's plenty of room for everybody. In my Father's house, there are many rooms available. That's special to us because, you know, Jesus gave the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. God wants everybody in heaven. He want, it doesn't mean everybody will be in heaven. But the Lord wants everybody to be in heaven. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. He would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This little reference in Revelation 21 uh, 16 is interesting. Describing the city, uh, heaven, the holy city. It, it lies in four square. We, we sing about that. It's a four square city. And in each direction, King James I think says 12,000 furlongs. Most scholars will estimate this of saying something like it, it's in every direction it's going about uh, 15,000 miles. 15,000 miles in every direction. Okay. John is not trying to encourage us by, by uh, laying out a literal city. This is not a literal It's not a physical city. It's not going to be really this many miles. He's simply trying to get us to understand like Jesus here in John 14 there is plenty of room in heaven. 
God is sending out the message with all these symbols that he wants everybody there. That his love could not be greater for the world if only the world would accept his son. So Jesus and the Father's house. We need to remember that, of course, when we think about our own soul. Let us not ever give up. The Lord wants us to be there. Let us grow strong in faith. But also the souls of others. Everybody we see, everybody we hear from, no matter what kind of outlet we're using, whether we're looking at TV or whether we're hearing something on the radio, whether we're seeing or talking to somebody over our phone, we see something and hear from somebody on the face, no matter who it is, the Lord wants that person or that group of people in heaven. we just got to do our best to share the message. The next category is Jesus and his expectations. This is kind of coming in two parts. Jesus has, Jesus has high expectations. Notice what, he, notice what he says to Philip. He's a little frustrated with Philip. Because Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you this long and you still don't understand? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus is a little, you know, there's no doubt that the Lord is full of patience and kindness, and he bends over backwards. He's already shown that millions of times to the world. He is very patient, but the Lord also has high expectations for us. When Jesus was resurrected and walking on this earth, he ran into two disciples who were headed uh, uh, to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. And he didn't reveal himself to them at first. He just listened to their conversation. They were perplexed about what had happened to Jesus and why it had happened to Jesus. And Jesus looked to them finally and said, Oh, you slow apart. Slow apart. Why haven't you already believed in all that the prophets have said? You see that? Jesus calls them slow apart. He, he was, eventually, he was practically saying that you should have been already been on top of this. This should not be such a huge surprise to you. You've had the prophets in front of you all these years. It must be that the Son of Man would suffer and die for, for the sins of the world. It, it was spelled out in the prophets. Okay. So you see, Jesus has expectations. Notice what he said to his parents early on as he was 12 years old. He said, how is it that you sought me? How is it that you sought me? Implying there, you shouldn't be seeking me. You shouldn't have been worried about me. You should have known that by this time I would start, you know, doing, going about the business of the Father's house. See. The Father has expectations of us. Jesus has high expectations of us. Yes, growing in Christ is a process, okay, but it should not take forever. It should not take forever. Notice the uh, exhortation there in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. There's a time when we ought to be teachers. And there's a frustration there from the writer of Hebrews practically saying, hey, you ought to, by this time you ought to be teachers, but now you have need that someone teach you again the fundamentals of the principles of Jesus Christ. You see that little tinge of frustration coming from, from the pen of that writer. Romans 15, 1 says, the strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we're to remain weak forever. Okay. 
There ought to be more and more strong people. The reason the Lord died for us is so that we would be strong in the Lord and shine His light uh, in this world. So notice Jesus and His expectations. And there's another part to this, John 14, 12, that Sam read for us. Jesus tells uh, the disciples, you're going to do greater works than these. How could that be? How could that be? Well, this is how I remember it. He's not talking about quality, but quantity. You're not going to, in quality, you're not going to do greater works than Jesus. That's not what the apostles were going to do. That's not what the disciples were going to do. But in quantity, they were going to go further. In Jesus' life on earth, scholars say that he traveled in his life about the distance from, from Huntsville to Lower Montgomery. Jesus went, would go, would go uh, toward Galilee, and then he'd come back toward Jerusalem, and then he'd go back down toward Bethlehem, and he'd go out to the Sea of Galilee and to the other coast, but he would stay right in that region. It's amazing how much he did, and he didn't travel the world. But he's saying, and he knew very well, that the disciples after him, the apostles and others, would take the gospel into all the world. That's what he's charging with the Great Commission. Go into all the world. So they're going to do greater works, not in quality, but in quantity. You know, Jesus said before he left this earth, Acts 1 and verse 8, he said, you shall be my witnesses, beginning here in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then finally to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why the angel, when Jesus ascended up on up into the sky. The angel looked at the, uh, the, the apostles and said, why do you stand there gazing up into the sky? Have you not heard what the Lord just said? Go and reign in Jerusalem and then get ready to take the great commission to all the world. You see, when Jesus went back to heaven, according to Philippians 2.13, he now works through us. And there is no plan B. Okay, there's no part two to the Lord's plan. He wants us to carry his gospel and he's going to work along with us and through us. So Jesus and his expectations, let us never forget how much he expects of us. And then Jesus in prayer. Final category uh, tonight. Jesus and prayer. Let's look at it closely again. Sam, are you there? John 14, 13, and 14? Yes. John 14, 13, and 14. Let's notice it again. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. All right. Notice that last statement there, I will do it. That's the answer in prayer. God answers prayer. Repeat that to yourself. God, and he hears and he answers prayer. I will do it. I will do it. We also find here in John 14 a great definition of prayer. Ask. Ask. Notice that. When we go to God in prayer, we're asking. We come in humility. We come begging. We come with our requests. We, we, we come with our thanksgivings. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. 
But we also come with our request that we come humbly. Okay. Not a time for preaching to the Lord. We don't preach to the Lord in our prayers. Okay. We come asking. Come asking. And then notice the condition. When we pray, we've got to pray in His name. That's by the authority of Jesus. We pray in accordance to His will. We know we, the more we come to know His will and what it is, the more then it's evident what we should be praying about. And so we pray in His name. And then the purpose is my favorite part. What's the purpose there? That what? That God may be what? What's it say? That God may be glorified. If that's not the purpose of our prayer, we ought not to be praying. In all things that God may be glorified through His Son. There you are. Jesus in prayer. Will, Je- will God answer prayer through Jesus? Yes. But you've got to know the definition. You've got to know the condition. And you've got to know the purpose. It wouldn't hurt to start your prayer saying, Lord, whatever I'm asking today, I want it to be towards your glory. Please defeat me in this prayer if it's not towards your glory. We have to be focused on the glory of God. And we have to be focused on the fact that He knows what He is doing. He knows what's best for us. Jesus and prayer. You see, Jesus gives a simple answer to troubled hearts. Believe in me. Believe in me. The more we come to know about Jesus, the more we can believe in Him and we can lay our burdens aside. In fact, we can just lay our burdens at the throne of our Lord. If we can assist anyone this evening with any spiritual need, isn't this a great chapter? We're not through with it. We can go on and on with it. Aaron says, I go on and on too much. I don't think I've chased any rabbits tonight. Okay? This category, that category. I just didn't I mark just go verses two through fourteen there. Okay, I don't think I chased too many rabbits, did I? Okay, no rabbit tracks tonight. No, no footprints. But what a great chapter it is! It's, it's the words of our Lord, the words of our Lord, and it's appropriate for us here on this Lord's day to drink deep of His saying. Can we help you tonight in any spiritual condition? Please make that known right now as we stand together, as we sing, Brother Andrew.